what does one do in the final weeks before reporting to serve a five-year prison sentence? When the sand in the hourglass continues to fall, and when the cadence and the sound of the ticks and the talks of the clock inside your head grow faster and louder. For federal inmate 04550-479, priority number one was making sure that his wife of seven years had everything she needed to survive during his incarceration. He spent time making sure she had access to all of his accounts and had the financial resources to continue with her day-to-day -day life during his absence. He also had to make sure she had power of attorney so she could continue to make decisions for the couple while he was gone. Once those basic familial logistics were tended to, inmate 04550-479 set aside time to do a farewell tour of sorts, visiting friends and family to say his goodbyes. He left the comfort of his home in the Midwest and went back to New England, to his hometown in New Hampshire, so he could drive up and down the I-95 to see high school friends and cousins and former neighbors not knowing when or if he'd ever see them again. Inmate 04550-479 made these house calls, these painful goodbyes, until he just couldn't take it anymore emotionally, seeing these pillars of his life that would no longer be able to provide him the support when the going got tough. Oh, and on the day before he reported, he went to the dentist. Concerned about a worsening cavity, and mindful of the poor dental care in prison, inmate 04550-479 went to a dentist to try to take advantage of one of the last privileges of normal life. On his way out, the receptionist had asked, can we schedule another appointment for six months or so from now? To which inmate 04550-479 replied, I'm going to be out of town for a while. When the dust finally settles from this election, when Donald J. Trump's eviction date from the White House is finally set in stone, I can't help but wonder how he will spend the last few weeks of the privileges of the presidency. Will he ask White House chef Christetta Pasia Comerford to make one final glamorous, luxurious, and generally huge dinner before he again has to pay for his meals using money other than yours or mine? Will he make another tour through Walter Reed to get his hands on whatever experimental COVID therapies or prophylactics he might no longer get access to on January 21st, 2021? Regardless of how 45 spends his final days, the sand in his hourglass is slipping away, and the final ticks and talks of his presidency growing nearer by the second. I've often wondered when thinking about the stories of those who have been canceled, if there was a moment when it all changed, when the decision between right and wrong presented and when that person had the opportunity to make a life-altering decision, fully aware of the downsides of staying the course and of the risks and the consequences of veering off the path. I've wondered if there was a moment 
when the first domino that ultimately falls is fully within the actor's control and understanding. Or, rather than some momentous decision point, do people's lives gradually change, with one small compromise after another, that when stacked on top of one another, leads to some completely different and unintended moral environment. Perhaps the erosion of right and wrong begins not with a bang, but with a whimper. As he walked around the yard at the minimum security prison camp in the northwestern corner of Maryland, federal inmate number 04550-479 might have said that it was the latter. That it isn't one moment where you make that permanently life-altering decision between good and evil, but a series of decisions that blur right and wrong, but that when stacked up on top of one another, can change your life forever. As inmate number 04550-479 in his green prison scrubs stared off at the distance, staring at the surrounding forests which circumscribed the Cumberland men's camp, seeing no fences confining him in, and perhaps thinking about white-collar criminals who had been there before him, like lobbyist Jack Abramoff, or who would come after him, like Paul Manafort. He certainly couldn't remember the first of his moments, the first of his decisions which would stack on top of one another and transform his life from one of an up-and-coming wonderkind to inmate number 04550-479. He remembered what those moments looked like generally, staring at a screen and entering the password of his former colleagues into the Astros network to access his team's then-current rivals' confidential scouting reports and player evals. But he's never been able to remember the specifics where he was when he made those decisions, whether he was at his house, at the Cardinals facility, at a hotel, on the road. While hacking was the word ultimately used to label his crimes, inmate 04550-479 might describe it a little differently. He guessed a password or two and entered them into a remote access portal, and boom, just like that, he had access to the Astros' inside information. There was no secret spyware or high-tech hacking software. Inmate 04550-479 subterfuge had all the technical prowess of a boyfriend reading his girlfriend's email. But our story starts before inmate 04550-479 was known just by a number, by a rap sheet but begins rather when he was a person. A person named Christopher J. Correa, who was born just two years before me. Chris Correa grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, right near its border with Massachusetts. His dad was a school teacher and his mother was a nurse. From a young age, Correa developed a love for baseball, not for football or basketball, but for America's pastime itself. Though he grew up in the Northeast, his favorite team was the Minnesota Twins. His favorite player was Kirby Puckett. 
Every time the Twins came to play the Red Sox, Correa tried to make it to Fenway to see his favorite team and favorite player. Correa would probably find it ironic describing his fateful activities as hacking in light of the technical acumen in his upbringing and background. If he was truly going to hack the Astro system, there certainly could be more sophisticated approaches than just typing in someone's credentials into a system. When he was a kid, he learned how to program using the computer language BASIC, and by high school, he was programming games on his TI-82 calculators, all of which required more computer skills than guessing a password. In college, the eventual Cumberland inmate studied cognitive sciences at Hampshire College. Correa focused his studies on how people learn music. After graduating in 2004, he enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of Michigan that expanded his academic focus to cover how people learn all sorts of disciplines. Correa applied his technical skills to his studies and wrote software that could collect and analyze large-scale data sets. Toward the end of his studies at Michigan, Correa saw an enticing post on the internet put forth by none other than the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals were looking for someone to help automate a process through which statistics from all college baseball teams could be scraped, centralized, and analyzed so as to improve the team's scouting capabilities. Correa, a sort of data nerd himself, saw the opportunity as a perfect way of marrying his love of technology and baseball. When Correa got the opportunity, he hit an absolute home run and earned another opportunity in the process. Soon thereafter, the Cardinals offered Correa a full-time job as a quantitative analyst for the team. He took a year off from his graduate program and never looked back. Chris Correa was part of the then-rapidly-evolving baseball analytics movement, where touch and feel and instinct were being replaced by numbers and statistics and analysis. Correa wasn't a baseball player, but he was a numbers guy, so he fit in nicely in this new approach to running a team. Correa worked with Jeff Lunau and Sig Mejdal in the Cardinals' front office, Two individuals who end up looming large in inmate number 04550-479's journey from St. Louis to Cumberland. He brought heightened analytics to the traditionally subjective scouting process. Things like biometrics, which Correa used to help the Cardinals make projections about potential injuries. And Correa loved the work. Unlike his academic pursuits, he had objective inputs to his craft, like college and minor league statistics, and he had objective outputs to it as well, like major league performance. Add in the fact that the sport itself was cutthroat and competitive and something he loved, and this was exactly what Correa was looking for in his life. While Correa had no way of knowing it at the time, it was sometime in 2011 when that first fateful domino fell in his life. This was when Mejdal and Loonhow left St. Louis for Houston to join the Cardinals' then-rival in the NL Central, the Houston Astros.
Correa's first transgression, arguably, wasn't really a transgression at all. Indeed, Correa suspected that it was Lunau and Mejdal, his recently departed former colleagues, who were the ones that were acting unethically. After the three had worked for years beefing up the Cardinals' front office's analytics infrastructure, Correa began to worry that Lunau and Mejdal were taking with them the confidential and proprietary tools and information that had been developed over years of hard work in St. Louis. What's worse, Correa believed that Lunau and Mejdal, shortly after joining the Astros, had illegally accessed the Cardinals' databases. Ordinarily, that suspicion would have probably gone the way of most suspicions one has about their competitors. It would have lingered but remained inchoate, incapable of being corroborated. But possibly through dumb luck, Correa was gifted an opportunity through which he could investigate his concerns. When Lunau and Mejdal returned their Cardinals-issued laptops and closed out their team-issued accounts, the passwords the new Astros executives had used for their Cardinals devices and accounts suddenly landed in Correa's lap. Out of sheer curiosity, Correa tested a hypothesis that is correct for millions of Americans, namely that Lunau and Mejdal would use their same passwords with their new Astros accounts. The hypothesis was confirmed. And just like that, Correa had access to evidence that would prove that Lunau and Mejdal co-opted confidential and proprietary information from the Cardinals organization for the benefit of their new employers. But that wasn't the only information Correa suddenly had access to. Indeed, he now had access to the Astros' proprietary system called Ground Control, which contained all of the Astros' internal scouting reports, drafting databases, and player evals, all of which were now suddenly at Correa's fingertips. According to Correa, the proof of Lunau's and Mejdal's misdeeds was indisputable, and he apparently provided evidence to Cardinal's leadership, but they did not want to take any action, perhaps because of the evidence's dubious provenance. But Correa did not think it was right, and so he kept digging. Perhaps it was motivated by a desire to build an even better case against his former colleagues, but perhaps it was actually a desire to level the playing field. Whatever the reason, for the next several years, Correa began accessing these Astros' internal databases to learn about the rivals' trade targets, draft boards, and scouting reports. Ultimately, the feds established that Correa accessed the Astros' databases without authorization at least 48 different times, though many speculate it was actually much more than that. The later filed information in the criminal proceeding detailed some of Correa's alleged accesses of the Astros' system. For example, on June 8, 2013, the start of day three of the amateur baseball draft, Correa accessed ground control and viewed the Astros' draft page look at notes on all of the players who had yet to be drafted. And on July 31, 2013, the oh-so-familiar trade deadline in Major League Baseball, Correa allegedly logged into ground control to read notes about the Astros' trade discussions with other teams. 
and on March 14, 2014, Correa allegedly logged into the system and read the Astros' 2014 draft board, evaluations by Astros scouts of potential international players, and more notes about additional trade discussions. What role all that information played in Correa's ascension through the Cardinals' organization remains to be seen, but sure enough, by December 2014, Correa had been promoted to scouting director of the St. Louis Cardinals, the same job that Lunau had before departing for the Astros. Correa was now in charge, but he was also playing with fire. It is not clear why, but between March through June of that same year, Correa anonymously leaked internal Astros confidential information on multiple occasions. For example, at the end of March 2014, years of internal Astros emails were leaked to a website called pastebin.com. And that same summer, internal Astros trade discussions were mysteriously leaked onto the website Deadspin. Perhaps it was to embarrass his former colleagues. Perhaps it was to punish them for improperly stealing Cardinals information. Whatever the reason, the leak did not help Correa's goal of keeping his high-tech sign-stealing off the radar. As the Astros scrambled to make sense of these leaks, that May, the team notified MLB security, who in turn contacted the FBI, which soon thereafter began investigating the leak and evidence of unauthorized access to the Astros' network and systems. For the next six-plus months, the FBI's investigation slowly began to catch up with Correa, all without his knowledge. While Correa cannot remember the day his scheme started, he certainly remembers the day it ended. Sometime near or around January 2015, Correa was about to take an early morning shower in his St. Louis home before going out on the first trip of the scouting season. A loud banging at the door, however, was heard. It was too early to be a neighbor or a salesperson. So Correa went to the door, and lo and behold, it was federal agents who were there to question him about access to the Astros' systems. While he was not placed under arrest then and there, it was clear that the most important domino had fallen. It was then that the sand in the hourglass began to slip away. Almost a year later, in December 2015, three days before Christmas, the information was filed in the matter of the United States versus Christopher Correa by an assistant United States attorney named Michael Chu in the Southern District of Texas, alleging five counts against the Cardinals' scouting director. Within just a couple weeks, after seeing the writing on the wall, Correa entered a guilty plea to all five counts. That plea agreement recognized that the statutory maximum of each count was five years, and the parties agreed in that agreement that each sentence would be served concurrently rather than consecutively. Correa would later state that he accepted the plea deal because, in his words, one, I was guilty, two, I wanted to accept responsibility as soon as possible so I could move on with my life, whatever that meant. Correa returned to the federal courthouse on July 18, 2016, more than a half year after entering his plea to be sentenced. Surprisingly, Judge Lynn Hughes ordered Correa to serve 
five full years in prison and ordered him to pay more than a quarter million dollars in restitution. Both figures were extremely high, especially since even the AUSA was not recommending more than five years. Even some Houston executives were stunned by the size of his sentence, but prosecutors reveled in their victory. This is a serious federal cr crime, U.S. Attorney Kenneth Magnuson told the media. It involves computer crime, cyber crime. We in the United States Attorney's Office look to all crimes that are being committed by computers to gain an unfair advantage. This is a very serious offense, and obviously the court saw it as well. By January 2017, Commissioner Rob Manfred took the, at that point, perfunctory act of banning Correa permanently from baseball. The Cardinals were also ordered to pay the Astros $2 million in restitution and were ordered to forfeit their top two picks in the 2017 draft of the Astros. And just like that, Christopher J. Correa was canceled from the sport of baseball. When I think about this uneasy transition we're living through right now, from number 45 to number 46, from Trump to Biden, from chaos to stability, I can't help but wonder if this story of cancellation in baseball has any lessons for this current moment, this cancellation in politics. Well, for one, if anybody has any doubts as to why so many people have been accepting Trump's crazy conspiracy theories about the Dominion voting systems stealing the election for Biden, as the story of Correa illustrates, there is a deep-rooted paranoia in society about the vulnerability of computer systems. Correa suspected it had happened as to the Cardinals' proprietary systems and informations, and was right. Ultimately, someone from the Astros suspected it was happening as to their systems and information, and was right as well. Trump's conspiracy theories about stolen elections through computer insecurities have traction because they touch a nerve in society. And for those of you who think I'm stretching my theme of cancellation a little bit too far, bear with me as I go one step further. Chris Correa's story is also one of crime and punishment and implicates a different but upcoming question that society will also face once we finally get Trump evicted from the White House. Namely, how shall we deal with the sins of the last four years? There was a world in which Correa's illicit activities could have all been redressed within the four corners of the sport of baseball, with suspensions and fines and draft pick forfeitures. Just as there is a world where Trump's lies and norm-breaking and illegal activities could also all be remedied through political changes and consequences and repudiations of Trumpism as a political movement. But for Correa, maybe it was bloodthirst, maybe it was AUSAs trying to make a name for themselves, but regardless the cause, one way or the other, he paid a very serious and criminal price for his nefarious acts. And with speculation surging about whether Joe Biden will eventually pardon Donald Trump so that the nation can quote-unquote heal, one can only wonder whether number 45 might soon be labeled with a different number, just like inmate number 04550-479. While Correa's lifetime ban from baseball 
does not look like it will be reversed anytime soon. By as early as 2019, Correa looked to have already begun his journey on what appears to be the long path toward redemption. First, after maintaining a near-perfect record in prison, Correa was put on supervised release, meaning he would no longer remain incarcerated at Cumberland for the remainder of his sentence. While the stigma of being a convicted felon was not erased from his name, Correa's path toward reintegration in society had started. Next, less than a year later, Correa's former colleagues were ensnared in a controversy of their own, as news broke in an article in The Athletic about the Houston Astros' sign-stealing scandals, which had allegedly helped propel the team to a World Series championship while Correa was sitting in his green prison fatigues in Cumberland. Suddenly, the motivation Correa mentioned for his wrongdoing that was laughed at back when his so-called hacking was exposed did not look like such a joking matter. For many insiders who had followed Correa's story closely, it suddenly became clear why he might have had a hunch the Astros took information that belonged to the Cardinals in the first place. Astros general manager Jeff Lunau, the same employee who Correa believed that took the Cardinals' confidential information to the Astros and hacked into the Cardinals' systems after joining the Houston front office, was right at the heart of the scandal. Lunau was specifically spotlighted by the commissioner in his findings, which identified Lunau as someone who had not taken adequate steps to prevent the Astros from cheating by, among other things, failing to communicate Major League Baseball's position on sign-stealing. While Major League Baseball only suspended him for one season, his owner promptly fired him. Curiously, while the Astros' transgressions were far more disruptive and threatening to the competitive fabric of the game than Correa's, no players on the Astros were canceled due to the sign-stealing campaign, let alone convicted of a felony. Chris Correa, who has only tweeted three things in his lifetime on the platform, responded, Guess who isn't surprised? But Correa's road to redemption took on a more theoretical dimension as well. He began raising the very questions identified earlier about why we punish in the first place. Recognizing the impediments associated with coming back from cancellation through incarceration, Correa, while still at Cumberland, organized mock job fairs, helped inmates craft resumes, and became the go-to guy if inmates needed help figuring out how to apply and pay for any sort of document, a birth certificate, a social security card, a credit report, anything that could help remove one more obstacle to rebuilding one's life, he said in an October 2018 interview with Sports Illustrated. Correa's only other two public tweets, both of which were fired off after being supervisorily released, challenged the prison industrial complex as we know it, asking if prison is even necessary in the first place and why we, as a society, feel compelled to lock up so many human beings in the first place. Perhaps redemption for Correa may take a different form altogether, one far different from how he built his name over the past decade, specifically one in which he aims to help blunt the sharp edges of cancellation in society. 
perhaps in helping others find a way to be defined by something other than the worst things they ever did, he may in the process redefine himself in a manner that is untethered to the worst thing that he ever did. It is unclear what will happen in Christopher J. Correa's life next. It is unclear how he will bounce back or if he'll ever return to what he loved most in life, America's pastime itself, baseball. But if he has to start from scratch, as his major league successes have been now all but canceled, perhaps he can tout a different accomplishment. His accomplishment as the coach of the champion of the Cumberland Federal Prison Camp four-team softball league. As coach of the dogs, Correa innovatively aligned the ten-fielder defensive positionment with triangular fly traps of three left fielders, two deep and another shallow, for power hitters, and right-loaded infields with two extra men between first and second for slap and dash hitters. It was reported that opposing players and managers were quite frustrated by Correa's groundbreaking and analytical approach to managing his softball team. But while nobody has been bold enough to describe his creative shifts and advanced scouting reports, which were manifested not in databases but in scribbles on lineup cards, as cheating, it was clear that Correa had caused opposing players and managers significant consternation with his sabermetrics approach to the game which undoubtedly will change the Cumberland Softball League for decades to come. While his record-breaking ascension through the Cardinals' front office may forever be clouded by the so-called hacking scandal, Chris Correa's undefeated season in Cumberland Softball League will go down in the history and record books as an unimpeachable achievement that can never be taken away, and that symbolizes one man's love for baseball his competitive appetite, and his desire to get his life back on track. Music